This episode is brought to you by Select International Tours. Find out more about joining me on pilgrimage along with our spiritual director, the pro-provincial of the Americas for the Community of St. John, Father John Michael Paul. Visit selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. That's selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show. Encounter, adventure, evangelize. And now your host, Brooke Taylor. Hello and welcome to the show. This is a special episode in honor of Veterans Day, Remembrance Day, a day to remember all who served in gratitude for their bravery and for the blessings of peace and liberty and to pray for our veterans. So many living with post-traumatic stress. And I'd like to thank my husband, Jim, a veteran of the 82nd Airborne, my favorite paratrooper, and all of our veterans who served. And so in honor of this solemn day, what a gift to welcome a hero, not only a man of valor when it comes to his service for the United States, but a hero of the faith as well, a scholar, a warrior, a teacher, a servant. Lieutenant Commander Ali Ghaffari is a Navy F-18 Hornet fighter pilot, combat veteran, as well as a recently retired faculty member of the United States Naval Academy, where he taught leadership to midshipmen. But wait, there's more. He is also a former atheist and current headmaster of the very Catholic K-8 school. How did that happen? This is one of my favorite interviews of the year. So we will talk about Divine Mercy Academy, the school he founded along with his wife in the Severna Park, Maryland area his own conversion story, and we will talk about education and why the souls of our kids are at stake. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, Commander. Thank you, Brooke. So good to be here. Again, yes. I know we had a chance to connect recently, and I can't wait to get into a little bit more of the story, which is so exciting, kind of a part two. But I forgot to mention, you and Mrs. Gafari are also parents to three beautiful daughters, two foster children, and I think that's just as challenging as flying the F-18 Hornets. Yeah, you know, I never ever imagined that we would be foster parents. That was never anything that crossed my mind when we got married. It wasn't a plan of ours. But God has, he's got plans. And so we, we, we always wanted a large family and God stopped us at three. We couldn't have any more. And so we really wanted a number of children. We just kind of took the leap into, into fostering. Fostering is a way to get local kids, taking care of all these kids who need families or at least a place to stay temporarily. And so we went through about a six-month process to prepare for it. They go through everything. It was very t- fine-tooth comb through every element of your life. And then we just waited. I think it was July 16th of two years ago. We got a call. It was about 8.30 at night. And we get a call. And I just hear my wife on, on the phone. She said, hello. And she said, okay. Okay. All right. And she said, hold on one second. And she said, they've got two kids at the police station, a little boy and a little girl. They say the little boy is very energetic. Do we want them? <laughs> I said, well, what do you know about them? And they said, not much. Uh, do you want them or not? Uh, and I'm like, how old are they? And she said, he's two and she's one. I said, all right, let's do it. And so we like freaked out and my wife ran to the store to get some some car seats. I ran to get the bedrooms ready. My my daughters were really excited. They were getting, you know, pillows and and pillowcases and and clothes and diapers and and so we cleared everything out and then the kids arrived 
about uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, evening, and they reeked of urine uh, and cigarette smoke. The little girl was a year old. She was withdrawn and um, clingy. There was kind of no emotion. The little boy was wanted to explore. He was so excited. He was running around and wanted to, to see everything, bathe them. That was uh, There was a lot of crying in the bathing. And then we tried to get him some food and then off to bed. And that first evening was really difficult. So the little boy, he wanted to get up and he wanted to play to know it's, it's time for bed. And so so I, I closed the door and I shut the light off and then he lost his mind. He went, it was, he went full golem uh, and just started throwing things at me and screaming and uh, and so I was like, oh my gosh, what is what is going on? What have I gotten myself into? So he throws something at me and I just take it and I'd move it out. I sat by the door and I moved it out of the room and then he'd grab something else and he'd be screaming. And this little two and a half year old boy was just, it was really intimidating. I mean, I, I don't know what to expect. So finally, after an hour of that, my saintly wife comes in and she says, I've got this. And she just lays him down on the bed next to him. And within about 30 seconds, he was out. And then I went and curled up into a ball in our bed. And I was just, wow, <laughs> what did we get ourselves into? It got better. That first month was difficult as we got them into a routine, the routine of our family. But then slowly but surely, they started to come out of it. I remember distinctly holding the little girl in my hand. And she, up until that point in time, was still someone else's baby. I, I didn't really know how I should, should I hug her? Should I kiss her? I mean, what are the, these things I think probably come more naturally to moms than they do to, to dads, foster dads. But it just clicked to me and said, I think she needs to be loved. I think that's what's the right thing to do. And it sounds so obvious. Um, but, you know, when it's someone else, some, some foreign child, you know, you're like, well, how do I do this? What am I supposed to do? But I give her a, ki- a kiss and a hug on that day and all the love we were able to foster and they started they started to come out of their shells she started to smile more and she started to become a little girl and and the little boy as well started he was very angry at the beginning lots of fits uh, but slowly but surely every day every week they started to grow and to flourish we taught her how to walk and how to talk and the little boy as well he was way behind he was about 18 months behind in his speech, communication was frustrating. But as he was able to get, achieve mastery over the language, we got him some help speech therapy. He started to come out of it and it became, we were mommy and daddy for them. They became part of our family more and more. So uh, that was two years ago. This is our third time with them now. But now it's like they're our kids. The little girl said, I love you so much, daddy. She gives him hugs and kisses and we're inseparable. And the little boy too, we were just wrestling tonight before the interview. It's just, they're part of our family. There's a chance we could adopt them here before before too long. So oh, wow. praying for that. So I was so, going to ask. Yeah, it's been a great story. So. For sure. There's a friend of mine who adopted a beautiful little girl from India, and this little girl has no arms or legs. And I had gone over to her home one day just to drop a meal off, and she shared with me that, and she's a single mom, the night times are the difficult parts. And because when her daughter was in an orphanage in India, that's when she was abused. So she still would have night terrors. And so I think for me, it's so wrenching. I can't fathom. I just am reminded of the importance of praying. And for the parents, the foster parents like you, who day in, day out, it's tough work. It's where the fortitude comes in, the virtue and the beauty in that to see them grow and transform. I think that fostering is misunderstood very often. We know that it's difficult, but I think what you're sharing is that if you were to do it over again, it sounds like you would. For sure. And and the thing that occurred to me 
as we were experiencing this was that every child deserves a good family, a good home to grow up in, and they don't all get it. And then if they're growing up and their parents are tied in with drugs, they're just not available to, to be good parents for them for whatever reason. Those kids, they hardly have a chance at life. And you know, what does that look like for them? And, and due to no fault of their own, if we can change the lives of just a couple of kids I think it matters to them, right? And so, so I would just say it's changed our lives. Like, it, interestingly, when the kids first came into our home, my daughters, uh, they, all, they all had to go into the same bedroom. So they started to share the same bedroom in order to allow each of the kids to have their own room. You know, the first week, you know, one of my daughters said, Dad, when are they going back? I want my bedroom back. <laughs> and so we said, well, honey, I don't know. And then they started to slowly change themselves. And they started to help out with the kids and be, became more a part of the family. And then the kids left. They went back with their mom. And then they were beside themselves. And they said, we miss them. When are they coming back? And so I don't know if they'll ever come back. And then when we heard that they would be coming back this last time, they were so excited, had no complaints whatsoever. They're, they're just there taking care of the kids. And they've been a huge help. And so the kids have changed. Their hearts have changed. And I feel like every time they've come back in, I've become a better parent as a result, more patient, more loving. Yes, we've given to them, but we've grown so much in love as a result of them coming into our family that it's changed our lives and we would absolutely do it again in a heartbeat. That's beautiful. And I keep thinking about your story too. And it was, if you haven't heard yet, it was such a pleasure, by the way, to have you on national radio, filling in for my friend, Timory, her show trending on relevant radio. But there we heard your life story, essentially. You had a rough beginning. Your mom is an incredible woman who had you when she was 16 and did amazing feats to try to maintain stability. But so maybe just for those that didn't hear that, a little bit of a brief snapshot of that period of your life. Sure. Yes. My mom was 15 when she got pregnant with me with her boyfriend who was 18. He's an immigrant from Iran. Tough choice. So I heard her mom said, well, you should think about an abortion. My mom said, no, I'm, I'm going to keep him. My father, biological father moved in. They got, decided to get married and to make a go of it. They did their best for the first three years or so, but they were young. And there was a lot of stress. There was myself and my little brother and then my mom decided it just wasn't working. So she left my father and moved up to Vermont, where we moved from place to place. And in fact, every year we were in a different location, a different place. We didn't grow any roots. And my mom, you know, being young and a single mom, got into drugs and alcohol. She did the best she could, but at the same time, she just was really young. And that situation lasted for a few years until she hit rock bottom. And then my, my aunt and uncle took us in for a year. They essentially fostered my brother and I. So that's been in the back of my mind where I think about where would my brother and I be if my aunt and uncle didn't take us into their home for that year? And was it inconvenient for them? Yeah, I'm sure it was. You know, was it was it hard for them? Yeah. But they did it out of pure love for us and to help my mom. And so my mom was able to get on her feet and then come out of rehab, new woman. Uh, there she got a good job and she met a good man, uh, my stepdad, who became my stepdad. They got married. And we went back to it with my mom. Life turned around at that point in time. So, so it was a good story. And then, you know, my mom was, you know, a stay-at-home mom for a lot of those times, kind of figuring out what she wanted to do with her life. She was so young when she was a mom. The great news at the end of the story is she 
achieved her dream of becoming a nurse just about two years ago. She finished nursing school and she's now a travel nurse. Very proud of her. I was just thinking as proud as she is of you and how proud you are of her. I mean, it really is extraordinary. From the very beginning of her fiat, yes, that she would choose life and then continue to choose life even when it was really difficult. And part of your story, which will thread through this entire interview, is education. The emphasis on learning and curiosity. That's a big part of your story because you just have happened to be brilliant. And so you went to an elite prep school in Massachusetts on a scholarship because, as you mentioned, you weren't in a position of means and wealth at that point, but you worked your way there and you had that intellect. And now today you are the headmaster of Divine Mercy Academy. And in the previous interview, which we spoke, we never really got into exactly how that happened. I mean, you had a very high profile, full life. You were at the Naval Academy, you're teaching leadership, you've flown all over the world on missions. What made you want to open a Catholic school? That doesn't seem super high profile like the life you were living. So how did that call come in? Yeah. So I'm a convert to the faith, which we haven't talked about yet in this interview. Uh, And so the faith for me is that pearl of great price. You know, I lived a life, a worldly life before I came into the church and I was so unhappy. All I wanted to do was be happy. And I was trying to find it in all those ways that society says, this is where happiness is. This is where happiness is. And I was looking there and I was never finding it. You think you have the keys because you had, you had wealthy friends, you had the best teachers and professors, and you would think that the world was open to you, and yet you were miserable. For sure. And it was only the last resort for me. It was God was my last resort. It was only coming to, okay, there's, I've tried everything else. I've exhausted it all. God, I'm going to give God a try through the impact of two incredible uh, men, mentors of mine who brought me to faith. I discovered that the faith was so beautiful, and that's the source of our happiness and our joy. And I wanted that for my children. And I know it's harder for people who were born into the faith than it is for converts to kind of realize what they have. And so I'm very aware of my daughters. I didn't want them to take the faith for granted. And I wanted them to be saints above all things, because I know that's the best thing for them. And so as we moved around in the military, we're at different schools, you know, every couple of years, came to Annapolis area and we put our kids in the local Catholic school. I just wasn't happy with it. I just felt like the emphasis was not on sanctity and becoming saints. And uh, and so around that time, sorry, my little guy just ran uh, so around There that, he is. <laughs> He's making a cameo. Uh, yeah. So around that time, we'd heard about classical education. One of the things that I didn't really hit on was that the classics made a major impact on my life and my conversion. So as Plato and Aristotle and reading the other early philosophers had made a major impact on me and my conversion into the faith. And hearing about this classical education, how kids could have it, I felt, gosh, I wish I'd had this when I was a kid. And I want it for my daughters so that they understand the beauty. And it's not school is not just something that they do. They just kind of just, you know, check the boxes and then they're off. And so I heard about this and said, gosh, I want that for my kids. But there was nothing around here that would offer them that on a full-time basis. Uh, and so after some discernment came to the idea, I need to start one, gathered some, some families in the area who were interested in joining. And then we just started the long road to getting a school off the ground out of nothing. I mean, it took us a year, but we opened up with four teachers and 19 kids. And we're now in our third year and we have 16 teachers and 88 kids. So here we are. It's so important we are awakened to 
some of the agendas that maybe we didn't realize before. And that's just across the board. And I had a great conversation with my friend, Brother John Michael Paul, the other day, and we were talking about this exact thing and the prayer for our children to be awakened in thought, that they're not just a brain, but the whole person. He said, you know, we're not just a battery in a machine where we're supposed to get filled with the information, go out and then slave away the rest of our life and do the job. And we need to be fully alive. It was really interesting because we were watching a BBC miniseries. It's called The Century of the Self. And in one of the episodes, it's called Happiness Machines. It outlines the work of Edward Bernays. I don't know if you know him, but he was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And Edward Bernays, he moves to the United States and implements his uncle's techniques. And he is a master at it. He has the ability to persuade the masses on everything from consumerism to politics, and he is actually credited with creating the profession public relations. Mm. So one of the words that was used was engineered consent that our consent is engineered through manipulation. As Catholics, the point I'm making is that we value logic and objective truth and thought. And that's why I think classical education is so critical because it's the best tool that we have to fortify our minds to not be manipulated. Yeah, I, I think that is at least one of the greatest elements of classical education is its emphasis on critical thinking. And the common question in classical education is why? Why is that? And you should hear if it's done right, the question why going over and over again. And that forces the student to dig down deep and then across subjects to to make those deep connections of understanding. You know, when I went to school and maybe you as well, it was just memorize, regurgitate and move on. Right. That's it. And then you move on, then you dump it and you flush the knowledge and you're moving on. That is the opposite of classical education. Classical education is why does this happen? And it capitalizes on the curiosity. So that knowledge is such, it's so deep. But yes, we got away from that. So the educational system changed around the turn of the century, around 19, the early 1900s or so with John Dewey. So John Dewey was a fellow Vermonter. He was, by all accounts, a kind man, but not a good teacher you know, by, by accounts up there. He, went to, he taught at Charlotte Elementary School, which was not far from where I grew up. But John Dewey was a socialist, and he wanted to foster conditions for socialist revolution through our educational system. And so the way he did this was a philosophy called pragmatism, or American pragmatism. He's the father of that. So the idea was the American experiment has failed, right? Democracy is a failure. What we need to do is we need to replace this individualistic society, which is inherently unfair, with one that's fair for everybody across across the board. It doesn't matter who you are, everyone is treated exactly the same. How are we gonna do that? We're gonna create a society, according to Dewey, where everyone gets exactly, they're prepared for being members of this one massive community, this, this com essentially communism, right? Where we're all coming together, we're workers, and we're going to work together. In order to get that though, we need to separate them from their families. We need to, we need to reduce their understanding of history. We need to reduce the idea of virtue and morality. We need to get rid of all of this stuff out of, because that stuff's all getting in the way of us creating these people who, who don't think for themselves, because we don't want that. We, that. That leads to individualism, right? We want everyone to just rely on the government because the government knows best. And so we're going to have them rely on the government, and then we're going to create our utopia based off of that. Uh, and so the idea was, hey, pragmatically, 
the education is focused on just what's utilitarian. Like, what do you need to get a good job to, to maybe just to get to college, to get a job and then become a worker for society? And so that was the focus away from the classical methodology, which was what is the big questions? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? What does a good life look like? Uh, and so it transitioned from gazing on God in the heights to gazing on how can I make money? And so that transformation and then the idea that you can try to create a utopia out of that is completely against who we are as human beings, right? It doesn't take into consideration God because Dewey was an atheist or very liberal Christian if, if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt. So it puts the government and the state as the God and then it completely ignores uh, original sin, the idea that we can't achieve perfection as human beings, no matter how hard we try. And so those things, Dewey was pushing as kind of the leading philosopher, psychologist in America at the University of Chicago and at Columbia Teachers College in New York. Uh, and so in New York, interestingly, around the 1920s, another group sh uh, showed up there in New York at Columbia Teachers College. These guys were a group of, say, philosophers, intellectuals. Uh, they were socialists uh, out of Germany who were inspired uh, by the socialist experiment uh, that had just fostered in Russia with this uh, Bolshevik uh, revolution. Uh, they didn't particularly care for the Russian model, but they, they still wanted the same ends, which was a socialist government, communism. So they were in Germany trying to propagate this through white papers and just, you know, they weren't having a lot of success. They were Jewish, and when Hitler came to power, so they left, they came over to New, York, to New York, where they met up with Jewish followers. They didn't always see eye to eye, but their ends were the same. And that was to create a Marxist uh, society here in America through the educational system. So they came into to Columbia Teachers College, which was the premier teachers college in the country. At one point in time, over a third of all education leaders went through that school. These are the brightest minds all coming to Columbia Teachers College. And so this Marxism is being dripped into the IV of American education and now being spread throughout the country uh, and then taking over our universities and our secondary and primary schools. And it's just been dripping in there for decades. And now we're seeing it in its fruit today. You said one of the ideologies was critical theory. Yes. So this is not new. No. So the Frankfurt School is often also called critical theory. It's, they're essentially synonymous. So the critical theory idea that they had was if we look, uh, so, and, and it goes back to Marxism. So the idea of Marxism is we look at through a filter, and that filter is the world is filled with haves and have-nots. Uh, and that's it. That's how we look at things. And so if we look at the have-nots, we say, hey, we need to fix this. So we're going to have the have-nots raise up in a revolution to overthrow the haves, um, whatever happens to be, if it's race or class or whatever it is, overthrow the haves, demolish the society, the superstructure of capitalist society, because Mar Marxism is the avowed enemy of, of capitalism, and then replace it with a socialist and then eventually a communist uh, society, government and, and society. And so that was the goal of critical theory. So here, fast forward to today, we see critical race theory. So what is the, the purpose of critical race theory? It is to pit, deliberately pit races against one another within America to create division, to create conflict, to then sweep aside the democratic structures within America and replace it with a socialist communist government. So that's, that's, that's exactly what they're trying to do with that. But most people have no idea that that's, that's what's going on. They're just kind of caught up in this.
And that's why your message is so important and educating, educating. And also concurrently, what we're seeing is, and this was just actually announced a few weeks ago, Mark Zuckerberg announcing this new rollout of Facebook, this augmented reality called Metaverse, which has been around for a while, but wanting to usher in kind of an era of virtual reality on a grand scale. And so you see people who are using avatars, and I know that's been around for a while too, but you're creating your own world. You see this in the news. We can't even agree on what is knowable. That used to be where we would be able to meet in those kind of objective foundational elements of gender and what is good for a child, the family. And now we can't even agree on what's knowable. So that's important because we have to have custody of our minds, which goes back to classical education. When there's so much confusion, the relativistic time that we're living in. So that's why that classical education in the Catholic tradition, I think, is absolutely crucial to value logic, objective truth. That is the antithesis, I think, of CRT and of what is happening for parents who have children in school, they're uncomfortable. Is it time to pull our kids? Is it time to start our own schools like you did? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'd just go back a little bit and I'd say that one of the hallmarks of Marxism is that there is no objective truth and it does not exist. And then the hallmarks of classical education is that truth exists, right? And God is truth. And so I would say classical education is the antidote to what's going on right now. And yes, it's it's past time to bring our kids out of the school, out of our public schools. And I would say even potentially out of some of our Catholic schools uh, who are falling into this trap of CRT, teaching CRT to our kids because it's happening. And so I think that you have to be prudent about what are my kids learning in this school? What is being uh, fostered right now? What is being put out? And then if you're not getting truth, beauty, and goodness in that school, pull them out and then find the the closest classical school, Catholic school, or a homeschool co-op. They're all over the country and they're growing. There's kind of a leading edge of classical education. It's just exploding across the country right now. And if there's nothing there, call me or email me and I will help you get one started. So feel that strongly about it. My kids will never go into a a non-classical school again. That is the way it's going to be for them because it's so different. It's so beautiful. The kids are happy. They love being at school. They're learning amazing things. The stories that they're they're reading, like Robin Hood, they're reading the Iliad, the Odyssey. These things, these are objective worlds where truth exists and they're inspiring they're exciting and and so the kids are just drawn into the material and they love school they absolutely love going to school and so i would never ever go back to anything other than a classical school there are some common objections from parents one is both mom and dad work or i'm a single parent i don't know how to do it i don't know where i would start i don't have the background any response to that because i think there's a lot of fear attached to making a change and you are someone who has faced fear in pretty much every domain of life so that as catholics too we have to remember to embrace courage that's a big part of it and that looks different it might not be a bloody martyrdom it might be choosing to change our life in a way that will foster that yeah so we see that all the time with parents who are ah, just unsure, it's, it's changed, it's a little bit further drive, ah, I don't know about this. I would say your children's salvation is at stake. So whatever small obstacles that may seem large right now to you, they're gonna seem insignificant if 
we, you don't go in that direction and they lose their faith down the road. They become a proponent of CRT and socialism. You say, gosh, why didn't I do that? Whereas if you do make that choice and you put them in the school and you realize the difference that they've made and they become saints and they become the children of, of God they were meant to be, you say, that was totally worth it. That was absolutely worth doing. So really the question is, where do you want your kids to be at the end of their lives? Do you want them to be in heaven or not? And I don't want to oversimplify it to say that they can't go to heaven if they go to public school, or they'll never go to heaven if they go to just a normal Catholic school that's that's a lot like our public schools. I'm just saying, if you want them to get have the best opportunity to have that foundation of truth, beauty, goodness, virtue, morality, the steeped in the faith, to have it all attractive, put them in the give them the best chance that you can. That's in a classical school. Yeah, I was homeschool. I am homeschooling our, our youngest son, Gus, this year. And one of the unit studies that we did was on Noah Webster. And I just keep thinking, if you admire someone through history, chances are they probably had a classical education. And you look at, obviously, Shakespeare, but also Galileo, and just that they grew up on understanding the importance of philosophy and oration. And Noah Webster, so we were doing a study on Noah Webster, and many people might not know that he was a great statesman and a scholar. It took him 20 years to write the American Dictionary. And so what we did is we looked at his blueback speller. Everything was attached to the virtues. He actually has a book that fosters virtues for young people. And so the definition of sin and marriage, if you look at his blueback speller to today's dictionary, the definitions are somewhat similar, but not nearly as replete with scripture and virtue that he put in there. And this is all lost. I mean, it's almost thrusting us back into the dark ages that we've lost that. Another quick thing to mention, my, my son, who's a senior, he's in a school where the teacher took it upon himself. By the way, this teacher loves the founding fathers. You know, he just, he's a really strong Catholic man. And he said, I want to start something called the Gentleman's Club. And so he also happens to be a tailor. So he took these young boys and he measured their arms and their neck. And he's teaching them, you know, how a man should wear a suit. He gave them the St. George chaplet and how to pray. If every school had a teacher, Mr. Anderson, I'll give him a shout out. But again, it's that truth, beauty, goodness to teach a young man how to embrace being a gentleman, the importance of virtue. They then are able to treat women with the beauty of the femininity and the dignity that they have. This is what we've lost. Yeah, two thoughts on that. I, I learned a little bit. So we're near Annapolis, Maryland. Charles Carroll is uh, the Catholic signer of the Declaration. And so the Charles Carroll house is here. He's from this area or lived in this area at one point in time anyway. I read a little bit about him in his teen years at 14, 15, 16, was able to, to write in both Greek and Latin and translate back and forth from those languages, which is something I would just, I could not even fathom for kids today to do. And it's just something that we've lost so much in our educational system that we, we just don't even realize. It's like that frog in boiling water. We just we just think it's normal, but it's not normal. Education they're getting has dropped tremendously uh, as a result of our choices uh, you know, as an education. There's a great book about him. It's called American Cicero. But I remember reading that, what you're saying, because it's it's not that they were more intelligent, but they, they utilized their gift of intellect. So, And then uh, to your second point, it was about the morality and, and the virtue. I think in a Catholic school, particularly in a, in a Catholic you know, classical setting, you can set the, the bar higher, right? And, you know, my kids went to a public school for a year while we were getting it started, and they had the virtues, you know, plastered on the wall. But what were those founded on? They weren't founded on God. There's no root. There's, it just, 
it's just a word, right? And kind of a vague idea of what one ought to behave like, but, but with, no, with no basis. In a Catholic school, in a classical school, you've got God as the foundation for that, right? And God has set you know, the morality and there's natural law. But also then you've got these heroes that who've lived these amazing lives, the saints, but also people throughout literature, throughout the Western world, who've lived these amazing lives. And you can hold them up to these heroes, heroines, and, and say, hey, this is the way we ought to behave. And so that's inspiring to them. Say, hey, I, I really love Robin Hood and what he was saying. Well, oh, how would Robin Hood behave, right? What would he do here? Or uh, Odysseus, right? You know. And so they've got that exemplar there for them that you won't find in another school, like a public school. So when you referenced your own conversion and coming from an intellectual elite background and atheism to the beauty of the faith and finding the Catholic faith, you mentioned. That literature was a big part of that. I know you're a big fan of Tolkien. And studying Tolkien's life, I just so admire, you know, he, three of his closest friends, one joined the Navy, the two other become infantrymen. He served in World War One. There was no glory in the way that these men died. And at that time, um, I was listening to a lecture about that era and how the grand old Arthurian heroes no longer existed because World War One was so brutal. And it was almost like these gallant stands, they just weren't possible anymore. And people were so depressed and very cynical. And so when the hobbits come along and Tolkien, you think of a man who most assuredly had post-traumatic stress, and yet he goes on to be an extraordinary man and writer and and man of God, and he writes about the hobbits, and these were a totally unexpected kind of hero, a new style. And the style of the hobbit was that the courage was shown in conquering his own fear, moral courage, the courage to endure, the courage to never quit. And I love that that speaks to us now. And I wanted to segue into what you're doing, because I know that that's a big part of your heart and passion to Tolkien and this underlying prophecy of this manuscript that you're digging into. Can you give us a little sneak peek on this? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I actually want to go back a little bit into Tolkien's child because I think it marries up with what we've been talking about today. So if you're not aware, Jared Tolkien's father died when he was two or three years old, and then his mom died when he was 12. And then he was raised by a priest, that Father Francis Morgan, in this Birmingham oratory, which were all these, these men who had known John Henry Newman, Colonel John Henry Newman. So he was inspired every day by these men uh, who had given their lives and had known Cardinal Newman. And in fact, interestingly, his mom came into the church, she became Catholic, in the church that was founded by John Henry Newman. They lived uh, right next to Newman's grave at one point in time. And so there's this element of, of, of Cardinal Newman that's infused throughout. And Newman was a huge proponent of classical education. And so that was the education he started the school there. And the kids there at the oratory had a classical education. But one of the things that Newman loved was scholasticism. And during that time, Pope Leo Thirteenth had set an encyclical, encyclical called Eternity Patris, which was a call to the church and the schools to come back to scholastic scholastic uh, education and scholastic philosophy because we had gone away from it and, and the ills of, of modernism were starting to ravage the church. And so Tolkien was very much inspired by the scholasticism. We know that he had Father Morgan's Latin version of this, the uh, Summa Theologica, his notes in the, in, the, in the margins. What we're proposing is that the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and, and the Hobbit Lesso, those two works were, are essentially a prophecy 
of what was going to happen in the world and what's in fact happening now through the lens of scholastic philosophy and theology uh, and psychology. And so all of these things are encoded within there. And it comes across as a, a fun story, kind of a light story, but it is infused with the Summa Theologica. My co-author, Paul, he had discovered all of this years ago. And I was, I was slow to believe him. I said, uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I'm going on and I'm being a good friend. And one of the things I like doing is I like helping friends, their dreams come true. And I said, all right, I'll write this book with you. You know, he'd send me essays and I'd, I'd include them. And then I had to find for myself. And I finally, after doing this for several years, I Googled Tolkien and scholasticism. Sure enough, this thesis popped up, fairly recent thesis about three or four years ago, where a doctoral student goes into how back in the Silmarillion, it marries up beautifully with the Summa Theologica. And so for me, that was a confirmation that Paul was on the right track for that. So it was amazing. That is like a holy Catholic Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Brilliant discovery. That is, so is this, is this in the works? This is really exciting. It is, yes. Yeah. So our manuscript is about finished. We're polishing, polishing it off now, and we're getting ready to take it to some publishers. I think it's overdue, but it it directly addresses what's going on in the world now, and that Tolkien could wow. see this back in his time, and he knew what was going on, but he had to disguise it in a prophecy, because if he had published it plainly, uh, say, like a C.S. Lewis type, very surface level, would have just been blown to bits by the Dons at Oxford. In fact, he said that allegory for him, and I think he was thinking about Lewis, his friend Lewis, when he was saying this, was detrimental to the message you're trying to get across. And so for him, the telling uh, of a story or fairy tale, the purpose of that was to bring forth truth and in fact, get past our natural human barriers that we have. Uh, and so the, the story gets underneath the wall or over the wall, sneaks in behind the enemy lines that we put up for ourselves and just gets to our hearts and our souls and then just kind of seeps in there. And then so he's sneaking that beauty of the Catholic faith into all of our hearts and minds. He's kind of let it sit there all around the world right now where people are like, gosh, I wonder what that's about. It's so inspiring. It's so beautiful, but I can't put my finger on it. But he did that on purpose. And we think we've got the key to unlock that. My heart is racing just hearing about him. And you look at Shakespeare. I think a lot of scholars agree that he was Catholic. The codes that he puts in into his writings, and obviously great artists do this, where there's keys and messages. This is no Dan Brown thing, though. This is really extraordinary and beautiful. Please follow up, please, if you... When you get this <laughs> published, please follow up. I think you're right. The timing of it also is providential. I wanted to ask you before we close, there are so you're such an amazing, it's no platitude, but truly such an amazing example because of the walk you walk, you have achieved great things, but you also realize it's the soul. And that's what you talked about in the beginning of the interview. You want to make sure that your children get to heaven, your wife, your family. For the parents who are struggling with their kids, their teenage boys, sons, there's so many, we always receive feedback about the gender issues. And, and it's usually the girls actually that they're non-binary and the confusion that is so rampant. And because we, we can't ask our parents really how they handled this. These are unprecedented challenges to a degree. I guess any advice that you might have in navigating the challenges? Mm, yeah, that's a hard one. You know, as, as you get older as a kid, and you've probably seen this with your own kids, your voice starts to diminish more and more in their lives. And they look to other people to to speak into their lives. I mean, you still, and you'll always have a voice, but other people's voices become more and more important. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to start the schools. I wanted to have my kids surrounded by amazing people. We're getting that. But, but going back to our families uh, or our kids is 
put them in the presence of mentors who that you trust, who can lead them in the right path, where they can, you feel comfortable with them, you know they're solid in their faith, you know that they're virtuous, men or women, whoever, whatever happens to be, where they can inspire your children. And, and for me, Paul was that person, my, my co-author for our book, and he was the main protagonist for getting me into the faith. And, and for me, for us- Wait, the- okay, yeah. hold the phones. Is yeah. this the same Paul? It is. It is the same, Paul. The very same. Yep, for sure. What? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now yeah. we have to explain because if yeah. someone's just hearing this interview and doesn't know your story or didn't hear your relevant radio interview, we have to say Paul is a huge character. I mean, he's your Samwise. I didn't know this. Yes. So Paul is one of the men, when you in the beginning of this interview talked about coming into the faith and, and your conversion, and you mentioned two men, He's one of the men. I came home the summer between my sophomore and junior years, and I had been doing uh, some organic chemistry research up at Colby. And I came home, and I'd worked for Paul before. He was a pre- he had a pressure washing business and historical restoration business. Uh, but what I knew about Paul was that Paul had barely graduated high school, definitely had no college degrees, but he was a self-made man. He was a hardworking man. Uh, so while I respected his work ethic, I had no respect whatsoever for his intellect. And so, because you're uh, in a different circle at this point, completely. I I thought I was the bee's knees, and I was on track to be a a world famous surgeon. So I go home for the summer, and uh, there's a party. I think it was. Actually, it was Paul's son's birthday. And back in Vermont, we have this little duplex on the side of a mountain in Vermont. We're overlooking this beautiful valley, Green Valley. And my, my stepdad, Dan, is out there. He's a man of few words, unless you get a beer in his hand and a friend. And that friend happened to be Paul that day. And so I just go out there just to be the fly on the wall and to, to listen to what's going on, to what's on the, the mind of my dad. The conversation turns to me. Uh, and then Paul says, hey, Ali, what are you doing this summer? And I said, I'm doing this organic chemistry research. He said, well, what, what is it? Uh, and I said, well, it's these carbene, these things called carbenes. He said, well, what are those? <laughs> so I get about three questions in and realize I have no idea. I've been doing research for a month or two on this. I had no clue what it is I was doing. Paul just just humbled me, absolutely just demolished <laughs> my walls and this, this pride that I had in, about myself and how smart I was. And then Paul said, hey, you know, it's very easy just to throw rocks at people, but I came to throw you a rope. I said, do you believe in God? And I said, no, I don't believe in God. There's no evidence for God anywhere. And, and he said, well, there's plenty of evidence. You just have to have eyes to see. So this conversation went on long in tonight. And, and I, I won't say that I believed in God at the end of the conversation, but I, what I will say is uh, he demolished all of my defenses against it. And now I had to reevaluate my life in, the, in light of that. But one of the things that Paul did, so this sent me off this like deep end where I was really second guessing myself. I really hit a depression. And then as I came back, Paul had me, he, he brought me into his basement, you know, and you know, we were, I forget what we were doing, but we were hanging out and he had he said, stand up. He's like, stand straight up. He's like, you are amazing. Like, you are going to be an amazing person. So you're going to do amazing things in your life. All right. And, and so for me, like I, I had felt so low and so depressed at the point in time, but to have somebody who I admired, invest in me and believe in me was so powerful at that time. So that set the stage for us to then have a conversation another two years down the road where he said, hey, where are you on your faith? And I said, well, I'm thinking about looking at all the churches in town and going to the one I like the best. He said, whoa, pump the brakes. He said, do we adhere to truth ourselves or do we change the truth to to us? And I said, well, I mean, I have to adhere to the truth. And so thus began our journey into the Catholic faith. So yes, the very same Paul. But what I didn't know was that Paul was studying 
Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas every day through that time. So, so while he had barely graduated high school, he was steeped in scholasticism and, uh, and, and philosophy. So I didn't stand a chance. I just didn't know that going into it. You did not give in without a fight. You were throwing back any sort of criticism or doubt that you could, and he was just deflecting it with his ninja moves of truth, beauty, and goodness. And he really did. And I know you said this went on for several months via email. Yeah. So, uh, so from that one email, we went back and forth and back and forth. And every time he would answer all the things I had against the Catholic Church, because I was determined I was not going to become Catholic. If I was going to do anything, Christian, I was going to be a Methodist like the rest of my family. But uh, So I was going to undermine Paul. I was going to pull the rag out from under him by no- learning his faith better than him. And so I, we just went at it over and over again for six months at least. And then when I was out of things, I went to all my friends and family and said, hey, give me what you got against those Catholics. And so I throw all those things at Paul. And he just answered the, he answered the questions with just philosophy and theology and history and reason. He just calmly deflected all these things. And, and from the outside, it infuriated me. But at the same time, I was growing in respect for the Catholic faith, that it was thoughtful, it was reasonable. And so when it was all done, I was exhausted. And I said, please teach me. And we started with Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, and then worked our way through the Church Fathers and up through Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, Hilaire Bullock, G.K. Chesterton, and on. So Newman, Tolkien. You mentioned the Methodist faith. Before you go, I just have to touch on this because I think it's another beautiful grace of your story. Your biological dad wasn't Methodist. He, you said, was from Iran, an immigrant. Where is he today in terms of his faith? So when my parents got divorced, he married a woman who was Catholic, but but because he was divorced, they went to an Anglican church for a while. But he was never, he was a hard worker, and he just works all the time. And so he'd work on Sunday, so he would never go to church and, and went on. But I invited him, uh, part of my conversion uh, of heart was through a retreat called the Axe Retreat, which stands for Adoration, Community, Theology, and Service. And it's huge in Texas, and it's it's kind of a Curcio type of retreat. And so, so I was, I invited my father out onto that retreat with me. There at the retreat, I had the opportunity to wash my father's feet and wash his feet and just kiss his feet and say, thank you, I love you. He wept. And then at the end of it, he said, I met Jesus Christ for the first time today. And so he is Catholic today. He and his wife are fully practicing Catholics and he has a deep prayer life. So, so good news story there. It's just so beautiful to soak in and it's so hopeful. We have to wrap up. I trust we will meet again because when the Tolkien and Scholastica book comes out, I want to be the first on the list for the the press interviews. But I want to talk a little bit about your consulting firm. So how can people find you and what are you doing with that to equip others to lead? Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, so I am president of the Frasati Company, which is named after Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frasati. We are a Catholic uh, consulting, leadership coaching and consulting firm. And I love working with Catholics, Catholic businesses. Uh, it can be a secular business, but with Catholic, after having worked at the Naval Academy in leadership for five years and, and teaching leadership to midshipmen, and then also to faculty, staff and coaches, I realized I really love leadership and leadership is so important. You know, if anyone's had a bad leader, they know that uh, it's really tough going if, you, if the leadership is not there. But the truth is that none of us are born leaders. We all have to learn how to be leaders. And so if you're interested, I'd love to chat with you at uh, thefrasadicompany.com. Uh, and uh, you'll see me and a team of amazing friends of mine who are there that uh, that are a lot of them tied in with the Naval Academy. We've got Navy SEALs, we've got Navy Admirals, we've got the whole gamut. We've got some Marines and then we've got some just non-military folks there, too. So all 
the nominal people deep in their faith who love leadership and love helping others. So. Also open for admission at Divine Mercy Academy, right? If we're in Maryland and want to send our kids. Please do. We'd love to have you. God bless you. Thank you for your time. We wish you a blessed Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Thank you for all you do, not just for our country as a citizen, but also for our church. Our citizenship is in heaven. And just to hear how on fire you are, it gives us great gratitude. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brooke. I had fun. Special thanks to my producer, Mark Cumming, for his dynamic skills and quick work. Sincere thanks to Ali for a show I will not forget. We pre-recorded this interview, and the things that we talked about, the things that he shared, has prompted tremendous, deep conversations in our home about education, purpose, and even lessons in understanding why we're in such a mess in our public schools, quite frankly. So very grateful to Ali, and also very hopeful. I hope that you felt that through the conversation today and the crucial call for us to have custody of our minds really resonates and of course our souls. That was very much enmeshed in the conversation and the purpose of Ali's drive as we heard there to promote a classical education in the Catholic tradition. Would love your input. The Brooke Taylor Show at gmail.com is where you can reach out. Also via the social channels to Instagram, Facebook. The episode will be up on YouTube in its fully unedited version. You can find that at the Brooke Taylor Show there on YouTube. Until next time, friends, God bless you.